Morning. Uh, last week, Jesus uh, took his disciples aside, and we, as kind of the readers, watchers, got to witness the big reveal. Uh, Jesus starts, uh, or he, he leads off with, hey, who do people say that I am? And then they're like, hey, they say you're a prophet or John the Baptist, which makes no sense because John died like a month ago. Uh, and then Jesus got real personal. He said, yeah, but okay, who do you say that I am? And Peter, always ready to open his mouth, said, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. <clears throat> And Jesus, from that point on, really establishes Peter as like the leader of the earliest church. And we see that playing out in the book of Acts, which records the, the events shortly after Jesus ascends to the Father and, and kind of the fallout from that and, and what happens as the church starts to spread. But we also notice that even if Peter's the leader uh, of the church, and he does, he functions as kind of the mouthpiece because he loves to talk. Um, he doesn't do things alone. He's always with others. He's got the support of others. It's not leadership as a power play. It's leadership as this is kind of a collaborative role or something. Um, and then curiously enough, if you've ever read the book of Acts, Peter vanishes from the story about halfway through. It's actually fascinating because he is obviously understood to be the leader of the disciples, and then halfway through, you don't see him again. Do with that what you will. Um, And then, Jesus makes the weird statement of, don't tell anybody. Uh, which I can imagine would be really hard. Like, if I've got good news or if I'm really excited about something, it is very, very, very hard for me to keep my mouth shut. Uh, We'll call it poor impulse control or I'm just an excitable person or whatever, but that's how it is. And um, we also talked about last week that part of the reason why is that people have a tendency or had a tendency, I guess they still do, to project their understanding of who the Messiah should be and what the Messiah should do onto Jesus. And there's at least one instance where the people go and grab Jesus and they are about to try and force him onto the throne, which would kick off a whole world of conflict with the Roman Empire and Roman authorities. And Jesus has to basically not vanish like he's a magician, but he has to get out of there really fast. And so I think Jesus is cognizant of the fact that the people are ready, but they don't know what they're ready for. They want the Messiah, but they don't yet understand what that is, what that means. The current text or gospel reading for this morning is actually about that. So you've got this moment, this, the big reveal. Um, this is like you know, one, of, one of those epic movies where the chosen one, the hero, that the, the um, movie maker, the, the writer or whatever has been um, hinting at for a while, finally reveals who this person actually is. And you've got this big epic moment. And then Jesus brings the temperature down quite a bit. 
because he starts telling his disciples that uh, his destination is Jerusalem. And when he gets there, the inevitable conflict between him and the religious, religious elite, and particularly the temple elite, as it turns out, um, that that conflict is going to lead to his death. Now, uh, I, I've said this off and on, um, but it's always worth repeating. The concept of a crucified Messiah at the time of Jesus makes no sense. There were a dozen that we are aware of on either side of Jesus' life, people who could have held that title of Messiah. Uh, Some explicitly, specifically state, I am that guy. And they die, and everyone comes to the conclusion, oh, he's not the Messiah then. We've hitched our wagon to the wrong horse. So to his disciples, who now have this information, this big reveal, Jesus then starts saying, by the way, I'm going to be murdered. Uh, It doesn't make any sense. And so Peter, having been established as some kind of leader, although Jesus, the real leader, is staring staring at them, uh, or he's standing in front of them, um, so it's a little weird, but Peter gets up then and, and says, no, 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 Jesus, that's not going to happen. He rebukes Jesus, which is a bold move. Uh, and then Jesus calls him Satan. Do with that what you will. Um, but Jesus establishes that no, his path is going to lead to his death. And that flies in the face of the expectations and hopes and dreams of everything we know about this slice of history called late Second Temple Judaism, which is kind of my passion. Like, nobody <laughs> literally expects the Messiah to die. And so Jesus is going to spend a whole bunch of time trying to mold and prepare his disciples for that moment. And when they get to that moment, it's not going to work all that well because they're going to scatter until Jesus is raised from the dead. And then when Jesus is raised from the dead, suddenly the concept of a crucified Messiah starts making a little more sense. Because in that that moment, they start to realize oh, the Messiah isn't here to establish a nation. The Messiah here is to save us from death itself. And then the rest of the New Testament is trying to make sense of that. Now, in the wake of Jesus making this big, crazy statement, he then points out that if you would want to follow him and he's saying this to his disciples in real time, then you would have to take up your cross and follow me. Um, That's a weird statement to make. Because on the one hand, Jesus hasn't been crucified yet. 
which raises all kinds of questions. And Bible nerds everywhere like to argue about this. What did Jesus actually mean by that? Because for us, 2,000 years after the fact, we, we know what Jesus means a little bit better, that the cross, a brutal execution and murder at the hands of the state, is going to be transformed into the defeat of sin and death itself. Like, we, we know where this is going. His disciples in the moment don't. So think about it like this. If I were to say, okay, if you... I don't want to say, like, if you would follow me because I don't want to be a cult leader or something like that. Um, that's a joke. I mean, it's true, but it's also a joke. Um, it, it would be like me saying... If you want to live a spiritual life, you first have to build your own guillotine. That's weird. Or if you want to follow God in its, full, in, in its fullest capacity, live a spiritually mature life, you have to draw your own lethal injection into the syringe. That's, that's uncomfortable a little bit. It's weird. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's dark. Now, Jesus' disciples, uh, surely, if they had not witnessed firsthand, they knew people who have, and most likely they have at least witnessed something to that effect firsthand, uh, the act of crucifixion. Crucifixion was always public. It's a symbol of, of Roman domination over its people. And of course, because Rome is just really good at making people suffer, um, you're, they're going to make the, the would-be, the crucify-e? Yeah, I guess crucify-e, I don't know, English is weird. Uh, they would have to carry their own instrument of torture and death. Um, it's hard to come up with a better symbol of domination and death, if you are carry, uh, other than carrying the thing that's going to kill you. Um, so the image would be stark. It would not be lost on the disciples. But what they would lack is the connection between that awful symbol of torture, murder, and death and what Jesus is really about to accomplish. And then he starts talking a little more generally. That if, if you want to try and hold on to your life, you're going to lose it. You try to gain the world, you'll lose your soul. And if you want to gain your soul, you have to die. Very roughly paraphrasing. Which works in very opposite ways from how we think. Um, Think about the person going, uh, going to business school. They're getting their MBA. They're very capable, well-connected. They've got everything they need to be successful. It is pretty unlikely that they're thinking, I am going to become a billionaire by giving everything that I have away. Or taking all of these gifts that I have and squandering them on people that can do nothing for me. You're not going to hear that. And yet, that's what Jesus is suggesting. 
Um, now, he does, at the end of this section, get into some kind of apocalyptic sort of stuff, the Son of Man coming, and we're not gonna, we, don't have, we don't have even a, remotely enough time to get into that. Um, but it is curious that Jesus says, some of you are going to see this happen. I'm sure we'll talk about that at some point. But for now, I want to focus in on, on that middle bit. Um, because Jesus not only describes like his literal, actual next steps in the course of his career as heading towards Jerusalem knowing he's going to die, but he also seems to describe the life of, a, of faith what we might call a spiritual life, but I don't like that term because it sort of separates things from the rest of your life. And that, that's not a category that Jesus and, and the first century would have known. Um, a life of maturity, a life of growing up, of, of, of following Jesus, of becoming more and more of who God wants us to be. So, maturity. He describes that life in terms of death and life knowing full well that none of this is going to make sense to his disciples until he gets there. So bracket off that moment, or uh, that, that idea for a moment, because we're going we're gonna to end there. There is, uh, there is something about what we, we could call a life of faith, a life of following Jesus, the spiritual life, Pick your poison. Pick your, pick your term. It doesn't matter. As a, as a life of becoming more mature, of growing up, of learning to, to be more and more like Jesus. The fancy pants term for this is sanctification. A life of starting out immature, and by the end of your life, well, in my case, being less immature. Some people actually become a little more mature. They're very boring. <laughs> there is an important part of what we might call Christian spirituality, uh, the way of Jesus becoming more spiritually mature, or to use the theological term, sanctification, that revolves around this idea of death being transformed to life. Have you ever not gotten your way? I hate that. It makes me upset. Well, more, well, I feel upset when I don't get my way. It bugs me. It stirs things up inside me that, that, that uh, make me want to control the things around me. Because I like what I like, and things should happen the way I see them. I'm willing to bet I'm not the only one here. Now, have you ever been in a situation where you, on the one hand, don't get what you want, and on the other hand, you come to the uncomfortable realization that that's what needs to happen. Let me be a little more concrete. I am immunocompromised uh, for 
almost 18 years of like chemotherapy and chemical warfare on my body. Of course I am. So way back, uh, it feels like a lifetime ago, it was only a couple years ago, as COVID was starting to spread, especially those early variants, which are really dangerous. And we lived in Orange County, California, which is really populous. And, and we actually knew people who had um, either had died or were shortly going to die um, from that disease. Um, at the time, I was engaged in one of my favorite things to do, which is Brazilian jiu-jitsu. It's like wrestling, um, with a slightly different goal. And it's also the worst thing you can do when there's a very communicable, dangerous disease floating around. And I didn't want to stop, because <laughs> it's like my favorite thing. And I remember, uh, shall we say, discussing this with my wife. I say discussing, it was an argument and I was wrong. Um, <laughs> but for our purposes, we were discussing it. Um, and I didn't ask her permission, but obviously I'm the villain here, so whatever. Um, and she was saying, this is not a good idea. <laughs> Your lungs could be compromised. Like, this is not going to go well for you if you get this and, and all of that. And, and I came to this moment of, oh, she's right. Uh, and it's not what I want. And curiously enough, being able to recognize I am deeply upset because I am not getting what I want, and yet this is the right thing, and realizing what I actually have to do here is soothe myself. To trust that in some weird, hard-to-understand way, um, God wor is working something. And hold on to that and deal with my own frustration, anger, and anxiety because I know that it's actually the right thing to do. Change things. A little bit. There is, and I've seen, that, I've seen this in people that I've been working with as a pastor. I've seen this in myself. It, it's, it's oddly universal that when we can hold on to this dying to self, dying to what we want, not getting our way, something dying inside of us, that, that, that sinful human nature, that tendency to be uh, really selfish, that our tendencies to be greedy, our tendencies to control, to manipulate, um, to, to you know, force ourselves on, on other people. Like, like when we, we realize that that's happening and we shouldn't do it and then we don't, and we see on the other side that it's the right thing to do, something dies. That's the process of sanctification. That's the process of spiritual maturity. And lo and behold, it all hinges on a moment of death. Not literal death, but boy, it feels like it. Knowing that there's life on the other side. Embedded fundamental to 
to a life of faith and following Jesus is, shockingly enough, death being transformed to life. Giving something up, knowing that that hurts like crazy. And watching God transform that into something better. If we, as the followers of Jesus, just knew how to practice that better, and if I knew how to practice that better, life would just be better. Rather than defending ourselves or attacking or insisting we get our way because it's just what we want, we die to ourselves, then God can do amazing things and will. Sometimes that means giving up what we want. Sometimes that means kind of an inverse. It means giving up our need to be needed. Sometimes it's recognizing people need something that you have and you can give it to them. There are infinite possibilities. Now, Jesus is highlighting this. He is revealing one of the most important fundamental, it's not a secret, but but concept of what it means to follow him to his disciples as he is revealing to them that the most important moment in human history, that that point in his disciples' lives on which everything else is going to hinge, I would promise you that the the most important weekend, shall we say, in the disciples' lives is what's coming because it changes everything. All of human history has changed because of what has happened. We are here sitting in pews in something called a church because of what happened here. That it is all coming down to this singular moment where Jesus draws all the authority and power that evil can muster onto himself, he is taking that death onto his shoulders and with Jesus, and only with Jesus, whenever there is death, something new comes to life. Which means what I was talking about here, which is more like, like just spiritual maturity, sanctification, psychological maturity, just maturing, whatever you want to call it. I don't care. Pick a term. Like that is just a small slice of what Jesus accomplishes on a cosmic scale. And, and this part, the, the maturity, the swallowing our pride, the giving up what we want and what we think we need for the sake of others and and. and everything that is entailed in that, like all of that works because all of our internal nature, the Bible calls it our sinful nature, uh, what it means, the, the worst about what it means to be human, all of that actually dies with Jesus. And for those of us baptized in the faith, baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, buried with Jesus in his baptism, and our, or in our baptism, means that we now have this promise that where things die in us, God raises to the, from the dead. God grants us new life. Amen.